welcome to the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to talk about preliminary engineering reports with Marty Howell, who's a senior engineer with Salder Miller and Associates, a civil engineering firm with offices throughout the Mountain West. Marty's work focuses on rural water and wastewater projects across southern New Mexico and far west Texas. Marty previously served as the City of El Paso's Director of Economic Development and Sustainability, leading to the creation and implementation of the city's sustainability program. Marty has also over 12 years of municipal government experience. He started his career in the Nuclear Navy on board fast-track submarines before earning a degree in environmental engineering from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. After working in the private sector as an environmental consultant, Marty moved to the public sector and struggled to balance explosive growth with adequate planning and infrastructure as a city engineer for the city of Evans, a small city in northwest Colorado. He's also been the water resources operations manager for Greeley, a medium-sized city in northern Colorado. Welcome, Marty. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, I, you know, I'm very excited to have this conversation with the unprecedented new number of projects that I see coming in the next five to 10 years for many cities and towns. I really wanted to cover preliminary engineering reports. <laughs> and I happened to sit in on one of your conversations that you were having at your booth. And I was like, oh, this guy knows what those are. I wanted to have you come on. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's uh, definitely a good subject for the times with all of the funding coming from DC and other places right now. Yeah, I wanted to ask though, so we've covered master planning in a previous episode, but how are the preliminary engineering reports or PERs different? Well, you know, a master plan would be, at least from in our perspective, a 30,000 foot level of where are we and where do we want to go over the next 20 years? And actually, when I worked for the city of Greeley, our director used to say that a master plan was a, a map, not a railroad. So it wasn't something you had to stick to exactly. It was uh-huh. a guidebook for going in the future. Whereas a preliminary engineering report is pretty specific. And you use a PER, that's the acronym for preliminary engineering report. So we don't have to say that 16 times. twister 16 <laughs> times in a row. Um, A PER, you use that to define a problem in your system, then you use it to find a solution to that problem. And frankly, most of the times, the reason people do PERs is because they want money. Um, And that's why it's appropriate for this time, and it's good for this podcast, is a PER is really a key to the gate, to open that gate to get funding for future projects, because probably 99% of the funding that's out there requires a planning document which is a code word for a preliminary engineering report or PER. Yeah. And I remember my first time working on the PER and I thought, you know, as a new engineer, that's all we had to do. <laughs> and they're like, no, this is like, you know, <laughs> where we flesh out some ideas. I mean, we've had some customers that are like, think outside of the box. So we you know, came up with things that were like pretty different then what would be the norm? They always went with the norm, but they wanted to see what the outside box things were. Right. But yeah, as a young engineer, I'm like, wow, that was easy. And they're like, oh, no, sweetheart. <laughs> we're just starting. Yeah. Um, would you think of this as like the 10% of a design? You know, that's probably a good way to put it. Really, what you're doing is you're allowing yourself to dream. So just like you said, you're looking outside the box. 
when you're doing a PER, when you're doing planning, you back up and maybe you already know what you want to do, but you back up and you go, well, what are the other alternatives that I am in my med in my in my head already uh-huh. scratching off? And what are some crazy ideas that we could try? So when you're doing that planning, you try and line up all of the possibilities or all of the rational possibilities to solve a problem. And then you knock them all down and pick the best one. And you're right. When you pick that best one, then you flesh it out and you flesh it out to a point that's probably 10%. So like when we do a cost estimate in a PER, we always shoot really high because one, we know it's going to take a couple of years before that project actually gets done. And two, we don't know all the details for it um, because like you said, we're more at a 10% level than a 60, 90, 100% level. Yeah. And anything can change. We had one project that all of a sudden there was cultural resources in the area that we had to take into account and endangered birds. And you're like, that wasn't in the plants, but they are now. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, that changes the game. I had two projects started by a friend of mine who then passed them to me when he moved to a different firm. Uh Um, I got left holding the bag. And in both cases, he had looking at the map and talking to the owner said, let's put a well here. Well, one of them was on BLM land, and the other was up a road and through about four or five private properties. It took me two years to work through the process with both those when we, because we picked those two locations in the PER. And you're kind of stuck. Yep. (laughs) So BLM, it's not a four-letter word, but it's close. (laughs) That's the Bureau of Land Management, right? (laughs) Yep, yep. And then the the property owners in that other, most of them were okay, but one was not so sure he wanted us to put a water line across his property. So you're right. There are tons of things that when you're at the planning level, you you may not trip against. Now, if I ever do a well like that again, I'm going to go talk to the people first. I, I've learned my lesson and I would do that during the PER. Yeah. But yeah, lots of things come up that you don't know about. Yeah. And you mentioned... PERs are useful for getting those for funding agencies. How does that fit into a whole project? Sure, sure. When we have clients come to us, usually they have a problem, right? They don't want to hang out with engineers just because of our eloquence and our great social capacity. They want us (laughs) to solve their problem, you know? Yes, yes. You know, like their well is failing or they just got a sample back with fluoride in it. Or they're Uh literally, they've got a leak in the water line last night. And unfortunately, we can solve their problem, but it takes a while, you know, and the the timeline would really, you need to do planning up front, but to do planning, you got to find some money to pay folks to do that planning. And then when you're done with the PER, well, now you've got what that's told you is here's the solution. So Uh you've got to go find more funding to do the design for that solution. And when that design is all done, which, you know, the design could include sending surveyors out to get the lay of the land at exactly how the water line would lay in or where your tank would go. Even, you know, if you're doing a well, where's the best place to put it? Mm -hmm. And then when that design's done, you have to go back and find yet more funding so that you can build it and then send it out to construction. And then your problem is solved. And frankly, most projects, that time probably adds up to... On the short end, if you're lucky, a year and a half, Yeah. Um, average probably two, two and a half years, but the longest is probably five years. Yeah. I mean, it could be extensive. And especially when we have like complex problems or complex water quality issues like PFAS, 
or other things that are coming into play now, finding the funding. That's like the number one thing when I talk to operators, I'm like, if you got an engineer, they've got to find the funding. They've got to know where the money is to pay for it. Yeah, gone are the days, or maybe they never were, I don't know, when as an engineer, you just design and just plan. Probably half of my work is helping people find money, helping people manage that grant, helping people keep the grant agencies happy, meeting all the paperwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if your engineer can't find your money or uh, tells you that's someone else's job, you need a different engineer. Yeah. Or they need to partner with someone or something like that to bring in that part because it takes a person really. I mean, I've been part of that before. I've walked the lines and pipelines and stuff like that and helped fill in the paperwork. And I'm like, this is not my destiny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't remember that class in my engineering curriculum at Cal Poly. Yeah. Yeah. They're like how to find money, but maybe there is now. I don't know, but uh, that wasn't part of mine either. And how to make friends with those grant agencies as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, how to speak their language. Yeah, and bring them what they want. It's a game. You have to know mm-hmm. what they want, give it to them the way they want, even if it doesn't make sense to you, mm-hmm. and just do it. So how long do these steps take? I mean, are, you're talking about 18 months, but like, can we kind of break it down just a little bit? Yeah, I work primarily in New Mexico, so I'll use that context. It could be different in different other places. In New Mexico, there is a nice funding source that typically folks can use to pay for PERs, and that takes about three months to nail down. Other places may take longer. To do an average size PER probably takes about six months to get done. Uh-huh. And then to get funding for design, in some cases, that depends on the time of year. So around here, many of the funding sources kind of open in October or November and the applications are due around January or February. Uh-huh. So if we've timed it well, then you, you know, maybe you're doing your planning and you can apply for design money at the end of the year and you would get it in August. If you've timed it poorly and you finished your PER in March, then you'd have to wait another year. But typically, you know, I would say you could expect to take another 12 months to get money for design. And then the design, you know, the quickest we could turn it around is maybe three months. And that's if, and frankly, faster equals more costly, but most projects take about six months to get it completely designed and permitted and approved. Yeah. And then we got to go back again into that funding cycle to get money for construction. And that could take about 12 months. The bigger the pot maybe takes longer. So if you're going after USDA funding, which oftentimes USDA likes to fund all of your problems, you know, so I've done Uh $6 million, $9 million projects for USDA. Those took more like 18 to 20 months to get through all of the paperwork with USDA to get their approval. And then construction, you know, most construction projects take at least two months. If it's a lot of work, it took, could take six months to a year. I have heard from so many people. They're like, yeah, we've started this project, but it's been two years. (laughs) <laughs> we don't know if it'll ever get done. You know? Yeah. 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 And that, like we said, you know, they have the felt pain today, right? They're yeah. having a hard time keeping their tank full. The well is scrambling or they're having to pay over and over and over to fix things that are broken, you know, and they're, they're kind of slipping down the hill, not able to keep up financially and having to raise rates and their customers are mad. So yeah, it, there's definitely some conflict there in that 
our clients want the problem solved fast, but when we're using other people's money, fast is not part of the equation. Yeah. I mean, if you have a pocket of money with the city, I mean, the city has it and they're funding it themselves. It can go pretty quick. Yeah, that's a whole different animal. I'm doing some projects right now for a local tribe near here and they're uh -huh. paying for it. And they said, so, you know, I want this done in six months. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and that's design, bidding, construction, you know. Wow. That's pretty fast. Yep. That's actually pretty cool. It is. I'm doing another one for a village up in the mountains where they need some work done on the pipe that takes water out of the river. Uh -huh. And interestingly enough, the time constraint on that is they have to have that pipe fixed by Thanksgiving so they can start making snow for their snow park. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's different constraints. We haven't even talked about that. You know, we're talking about funding and design, but, you know, there might be environmental things that are necessary or like you said, you know, deadlines for snow, you got to have it there in yep, place or already. Even if you're going to paint a tank in some place where it's cold, it costs a ton more to paint a tank in the winter than it does in the summer. You know, yeah. so if you're going to rehab a tank, all hands on deck to get it, you know, so you can bid it when it's warm, not when it's cold. Yeah, I will say, though, it seemed like all the environmental work I did that was exactly outside here in Phoenix always seemed to hit in August. <laughs> you know, it'll always be pushed back three months. I'm like, we could have done this in March for the love of. Yeah. Yeah, I did a very huge project in Colorado at Rocky Mountain Arsenal that was a former um, chemical weapons plant that had sat idle forever. And then the uh -huh. bald eagles came and nested at the lakes. So we oh. literally had a window in the winter where we couldn't work on half the site because it was the bald eagle hatching time. Yeah, and you're not allowed to mess with that. Nope. <laughs> no touch. No touch. Yep. So, okay. We've talked about the timing and the funding and things. What is included? You know, what do they consist of when we do, we form a PER? You know, at its core, like we talked about up front, a PER is really defining what your problem is. And sometimes that's really clear. My well is failing. Yeah. Sometimes it's not so clear. Like, let's say you're having a hard time keeping up with demands and your tank is many times it's empty and customers don't have water. You know, that could be that your well isn't producing it much. It could mean that you have a bunch of leaks. You know, we had a client recently that that was their exact situation. And, and while at first we thought they needed another well, what they really needed to do was fix the leaks in their system because they were losing half the water they were pumping. Oh. And when we fix those leaks, then they were able to keep up. So really up front, what we're doing is we're defining what the problem is. We're looking at all of their meter records. We're looking at the operation of their pumps, their tanks looking at how much they've sold all, all the, you know, and from treatment, you know, it gets really involved. We do a lot of sampling, a lot of jar testing. We go through the existing system and really nail it down. And then after we've defined the problem, then we pick apart how do we solve that problem? And we look at it different ways and try and have at least two competing solutions to every problem um. and literally compete those with each other. We look at the cost for those and look at where money might come out to be used for those problems. And then we put together a schedule on what we think it'll take to go after the money and construct the solution. And depending on the funding source, you might actually have to have some public meetings to talk about those. You know, that would be more appropriate if you're doing like a, waste, a new wastewater treatment plant that oftentimes uh -huh. people are really mad at. 
Um, it's not necessarily ever applicable when you're fixing leaky water lines. Everyone wants you to do that. But, you know, my boss that says that the worst day of his professional career was the public meeting for a proposed new wastewater plant that uh, did not get built because of the uh, upset folks at the public meeting. Yeah. And something that a lot of engineers, I think, forget about is that public relations part. Mm, yeah. You got to build up that energy within the community that this is a good thing. This is what we need or explain why we actually have to have it kind of thing. It's a good way to come out for the operators to come out as, or the city to come out as the hero rather yep. than a villain. You've never you know, took care of this stuff. Yeah. Good public relations. Like you said, you're showing them what the problem is and probably the water operator, the board for whoever the water utility is, they have things that hurt for them, right? Having to go yeah. out at two in the morning and fix problems. Your clients have different things that hurt, like the brown water in the pipes from when you do the leaks or um, the bad tasting water or whatever. And if we can do a good job of describing to them how what we're going after solves their problem, then we get ahead of the game. And it's a little harder when we say, hey, you're contaminating groundwater with all your septic tanks, so we need to put in a wastewater treatment plant. Um, so that probably takes longer, deeper conversations. But oftentimes we don't do a good job of speaking to what the felt need is of our client. Yeah, that takes some finesse. I've been in public meetings before where I've had to describe some of the work that we've needed to do, but you have to describe it in a way that everyone can understand, but not insult anyone either. <laughs> you know, sure, sure. You don't want to come off as the superior one because no one listens to that. I think public relations is the tricky part of it, the public comment. I agree. So we talked about how there's like a template sometimes for USDA. What templates are there and which ones, you know, what does that entail? Sure. The one that probably 95% of the folks out there use is one that was created by USDA and then the states all agreed to. Mm -hmm. There's a few others. Uh, I think the Economic Development Association has one. Maybe the Forest Service has one that's a little different, but very few and far between. The main one is that common template that USDA created and that occasionally they update. They have an outline and in there they call out, here's the specific things you have to have in every planning or every preliminary engineering report. And they want you to analyze the existing water system. They, they want you to talk through what's there, tanks, pumps, pipes, wells, treatment, you know, all that. And then they want you to talk about the state of the nation. What's wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? What kind of things are happening? Yep. How often are you going to fix in water lines? What water quality samples have come back bad? How often are you having to change the membranes in your reverse osmosis plant? Uh -huh. You know, what color is the water that's coming out for your clients? All those things. Um, and then one that would apply mostly to treatment is, are there future regulatory issues that are going to make it so that you you know, your current system isn't working okay. So let's say arsenic levels, yeah. um, the, the regulatory limit goes down. Well, right now you are you're you have a little bit of arsenic in your system, but it's low enough that you're not in trouble. Well, if that if there's a future limit that comes out and you're above it, you know, we want to talk about that in the PER and not just blow it off. And I think that's one thing where it's a little bit hard. You have to have a bit of a, you're like looking into a crystal ball, like what is going to happen? And I think some of the most valuable information I ever heard was just assume that it will tighten. And I was like, oh, okay, that changes my numbers and things. 
Definitely. So you want to look in a crystal ball and give your client a feel for what they might have to deal with in the future. And then, you know, we've having identified what the problems are, then you evaluate what the solutions could be to those problems and develop costs to do those. And it could be, you know, let's say you need a new more storage for your water to meet fire flow or something. Uh huh. Well, do you want an elevated tank um, down by the river or do you want a ground storage tank up on the hill? Those are two very different approaches. One would need a pump that would pump up to the tank and then flow down. The other would need to put a water line up to the tank up on the hill. So you evaluate those against each other. You look at the cost to build it and the cost to operate it over time. And um, you score those. And so, most of the time it's done with cost. Sometimes there are other things like land, right? So if BLM was in the way, you know, it might be cheap, but it could take 10 years. So that, that would be something that would tip the solution that's not on BLM land uh -huh. to be picked. Uh, so that you put together what the solution is, and it could be a basket of solutions. So here's what we're going to do with the tank. Here's what we're going to do with the water lines. Here's what we're going to do with the well. Here's what we're going to do with a generator, you know, all those kinds of things. And you say, this is our recommended alternative. And then you put together a financial plan of how to do it. If the client and local conditions are like, yep, we think this is a great USDA project, then you would put together a, a kind of a, a financial plan to get it funded by USDA. If it's maybe smaller funding sources, you may have to break it up into phases and do it over three separate you know, phases. And maybe each one takes uh -huh. two years to design and build. You do have to assess the environmental impacts of those um, alternatives and, and use that as part of your scoring cr criteria and then kind of have a plan to implement it, not just financially, but overall. Now, something that I didn't take into account when I first was you know, working on projects and PERs is that not only environmental impact, but what does it look like to the customers around them? You know, if you're in a more expensive area, uh, they're going to want everything to be beautiful. They don't want to see some ugly pump. And that'll drive up your costs as well. Oh, property values. That's the other thing. You know, you're not going to drive down my property values by putting that ugly pump there. That's another thing that could change or push an option out or bring an option in. Absolutely. There are a lot of things to take into account. And frankly, I think as engineers, we don't do a good job or a good enough job of tapping into those thoughts. And, and most of the time, the way we do that is we sit with our clients. So instead of going back to our office and closing the door and doing all this work, we, we uh -huh. do need to do a lot of that. But we need to spend time at our clients' offices talking through, what do the neighbors think about this? And how would this look on the ground? And because they know their neighborhoods, they know their neighbors, they're going to be able to point us in the right direction for the potential future problems that we're going to bump into. Yeah, because a fence with those little slats in it is really different from a concrete fence. <laughs> it's just the expense there. So for the operators in the cities and towns that are looking for a PER, what do they need to bring to that table. <laughs> yep. So here's the other end of that is our clients might want us to say, here, do a PER and then walk away. It's like, well, sorry. Uh, doing a PER is much like a physical exam that you have to go through every year, at least for those of us that are getting a little older. And if you recall, going to the doctor includes some poking and some prodding that is not all that comfortable. Um, yes. To do a PER, we need to really get into your kitchen. We need a detailed history of your system. 
you know, when was it built? How many people were connected initially? How has it grown? What kind of pipe is in the ground? How was that tank built? Do you have copies of the plans from when it was built? As built? Yeah, yeah. Oh, which... yeah. I've gone through the boxes and you've <laughs> yeah, yeah. mylar copies. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and the, you take them out to the operator and they're like, oh, it hasn't looked like that for 30 years. Yep, <gasps> yep. Um, any old reports? Here in New Mexico, we have what's called a sanitary survey where the environment department comes and goes through your system at once every three years. And if they see something that's not healthy, they ask you to fix it. We would need those. We would need your budgets. We'd need your audits. Um, we need your grant and loan paperwork, which might sound intrusive, but we need that in order to paint the financial picture for where you are and where you're going to go. Um, we need your rate schedule. Um, we'll need sample results from your wells, from your treatment systems, any kind of inspections like on wells or tanks, details on equipment down to what's the horsepower and pump model that you have for your well or your booster station. Yep. I've gone out and actually taken pictures of all the little tags yep, yep. on all the equipment because they're like we might as well do all of this all at the same time yeah and anymore with phones you know i just walk through and video everything because you always forget to take that one picture and then one that is harder to get is a history of maintenance yeah from an operator's perspective you know as an operator you probably are always in this pickle of not having enough money or time to fix all of your problems one way to help there is to keep a good record of how much work you've had to do to fix those problems. So then I can make a case in the PER for how much it's costing your utility to, for example, fix those line breaks. So if you're going out every month and spending four or $5,000 to fix something, it's easier for me to make the case that we need to replace that thing than if you're like, well, yeah, it leaks a lot. It's harder to make the case if we don't have good documentation. Yeah. And then obviously, most of the time, our clients know what needs to be fixed, you know, so we want to hear that from them. And we need to hear it during the PR, not during the pre-bid, you know, <laughs> when it's two years down the road and you're getting ready to go to construction. Yeah, I would say, you know, be nice to the young engineer because they cost the least they're sent out into the field. <laughs> <laughs> Asking yep. all those questions. And, and there's a couple of times when the operators look at me, why do you want to know that? I'm like, I don't, but my boss does. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And frankly, it is intrusive and I, I get it. And most of the time we ask 20 questions and we get those answers and then we come back with two more and they're like, really? It's like, well, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know, we thought that would answer it, but mm, it didn't. <laughs> yeah. And frankly, if you can see past the pain to we're, we're in this to get you the money to fix your problem, that helps. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, you know, if there are certain grant fundings or financial situations where they're like, if this is a critical or chronic issue, I mean, that can bump you up or get you more funding compared to someone who's just, you know, trying to do general maintenance. And you're like, we've had critical failure here. This tank has to be fixed. Like you said, you know, or they're missing half their water that they're pumping out. That makes a difference, I think. Yeah. That one clarifies the problem and two helps us make the case to help you go get the money to solve the problem. And I was going to say, it, I'm almost like, don't let anyone retire during the project. <laughs> they <laughs> that, know where the bones is, are lying. Oh, man. You know, the bodies yeah. are buried. <laughs> Literally, the tribe I mentioned earlier, we're, we're replacing a water line for them. 
and they have to send their guys with our surveyors go okay the water line goes past this tree and then there's a special site over here you can't go near so yeah a lot of the institutional knowledge is in those operators that have been running that system for years and years and our job is to peel it out of them before they move on to greener pastures yep make sure they're in the meetings so yep. they can tell you you're dumb before before yeah. you get there <laughs> totally I was telling someone yesterday, one of the things that we don't do a good enough job at is getting the engineer and getting things in front of, or I'm sorry, getting the operator. And once we've kind of got a draft plan, sitting them down and showing it to them and going, what do you think? Yeah. Because they are the ones that really know their bones of their system and, and they can tell you, yeah, that's great. But, or they'll go, yeah, you're stupid. You know, and, and we want to hear that up front, not halfway down the road. Yeah. My father-in-law actually was the water superintendent for his town. Mm -hmm. And one of the first times I, I met him, he looked at me, he goes, I hate engineers. I'm like, oh, crap. Because <laughs> <laughs> my husband and I had been dating, you know, we we're thinking about getting married. And I'm like, you hate engineers. Um, uh, hi. <laughs> yeah. That's because he's had some engineer come in and tell him that the engineer's smarter than him and knows better than him and all that. And it's like, mm, yeah, you, you haven't been around the block long enough, but yeah. Yeah. It's, I think of it as two halves of the coin. You can't spin the coin without both sides. Sure. My stepdad ran the water system for the small town up near Yosemite where I grew up in high school. Similar experience. Got it. Got it. Well, okay. So let's talk about better treatment. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think we broke this out as an example of something that could be talked about in a PER. Um, and let's say the reason you're coming to us is because there's something in your water that needs treated. The fluoride levels are creeping up. You've got um, low levels of nitrate from some sort of groundwater contamination. Something's going on that's mm -hmm. making it so that the water needs treated. Um, things that we would need to learn about during the PER would, would include what are the flows that you are treating now? Or what are the flows that you're providing to your customers that need to be treated? You know, how many gallons a day? How many yeah. gallons a minute? What would the peak flow look like? Um, a big one is what technology are you using, if any? And how is that working? You know, so let's say you're yeah. treating, but it's not treating good enough. A question I always ask when some vendor comes through the door and goes, I've got the latest, greatest, best way to treat nitrate, you know? I always ask, uh, where else is it working? <laughs> yeah. Show me. You know, we're all from Missouri. Because frankly, as water operators and water engineers, we're entrusted with keeping our clients alive. <laughs> so yeah. it's not like we want to take risks and try something. So we want to know if it's worked elsewhere. Um, if it's something, you know, oftentimes when we're doing treatment, we want to do a bench test or a pilot test and maybe bring a small scale uh kind of bundle of equipment out to the site and run it and see how it works. Or if we can't do that, then do the same thing on a bench, you know, so take a whole bunch of water from our clients, take it to the people that want to sell us the treatment process and have them run it there. And then, you know, really what we want to know at the end of the day is how much does it cost to build this system? What's the equipment cost? What's it cost to put the RO in or, you know, the, the ion exchange system or, or whatever it is. Uh -huh. But then also, what are the operational costs? Um, and, and there's layers to that. How much does it cost in power? How much does it cost to replace things? Like if you have to replace the membranes in your RO every week, that could add up. And then the hidden one is 
how much does it cost to pay the operator? So there are some systems that are pretty low maintenance, don't need a lot of attention, and maybe need a level two, you know, wastewater operator. There's others that could be a lot more intensive or water operator, depending on what side of the coin we're on, um, that, you know, would need full-time attention and would need a level four operator. That adds up, you know, and frankly, once or twice we have missed on that and built something that was more complex than we should have for our client. And then they end up having to pay someone to come help their operator to keep that thing going. And oh. that's, that's not really helping solve the problem, right? We've created a new problem and passed it past the buck. Yeah. That's not a great way to win friends. No, no, it's not. Yeah. And I was going to bring that up, you know, certifications might change mm -hmm. and the person you have might not be interested in testing again. I've seen some operators, they're like, look, I've only got a year left. I'm not going to go for you know a higher level to operate this. I'll just go somewhere else. Yeah, I don't have my level four, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I, I don't need it, but I could do it. Uh, but so there is a fair amount of work in getting licensed. So I don't, I don't fault anyone for being happy where they're at. So you're right. You know, that is part of the equation you probably don't write down in the PER, but you really need to talk to the client about. Yeah. Because it, it, that could make or break you. Hey, you have this fantastic, sexy equipment, and now there's nobody to run it. <laughs> yep. We have a small system. They had uranium, fluoride, and nitrates all on the groundwater. Oh, my gosh. And we got USDA funding. I think it was $8 million. Um, one of the guys in town there got trained up and certified to run it. So there's only about 20 people there, and he's the youngest, and he's 60. Oh, and that town's not growing. Uh oh. So, you know, what happens when Tom has to go take care of his mom? Uh, you know, are they going to have to pay to have someone come look at it twice a week or more? <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of things to consider. Yep. And that's another thing to talk to the customer and say, really, do you want something this sophisticated? Is that something, you know, your town, your city, your operators are willing to work with? Yeah. I will say, though, it can be really pretty in the field. I've seen some really pretty tech and I'm like, oh, that's some sweet design there. <laughs> yeah, I, I was in a treatment plant recently and I had that same sentiment of, oh, look, they painted the pipes different colors and it's so clean and pretty in here. Yeah. It was pretty intricate though. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what happens with agency reviews. What was your experiences with those? Sure. So you know, the reason we're doing this planning is to get money and to get it approved. So most places when you do a PER, you've got to send it to someone and get them to approve it. And that could be at the environment department where they're saying, yes, the proposed solution you have will treat the water to a safe level, or the tank you're talking about is big enough to meet the demands that we require. It could be the piece people paying for it. USDA would be ones that would review it if they're giving you money for it. But Anyways, what they're looking for is, are the things that you're proposing eligible for the funding that we have for you? Um, one thing, oftentimes, you know, there's a nuance in fire protection. USDA will uh -huh. not pay to upsize a system to provide fire flow. You know, other funding sources might or might not. But if, if we're proposing a solution that is clearly just to provide fire protection, USDA won't pay for it. So it's got to be eligible. Okay. Um, one thing that they like to do, uh, they, they use the word modest in size, cost, and design. So they don't want a Cadillac. They don't want it over-designed. 
They really want us to do a good job of projecting out how much will your system grow over the next 20 years? How many people are going to move in? How much are you going to expand and add people that are outside of the system? And then have you sized either the tank or the pump or the treatment unit modestly and not oversized uh-huh. it? And that's both for a cost perspective, but also if you've got a tank that's five times too big, then you're going to end up with bad water in there. So there are two sides to that. And then, yeah. you know, they want, they look at the need for the project. Have we upfront defined very clearly, we need to put this treatment unit in because we have elevated levels of fluoride, or we need to replace these lines because half of our water is leaking out and we're basically watering everyone's lawns instead of, you know, selling them water. Wish they have great lawns, but yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, like with the, the PFAS things that are coming in now too. Oh yeah. Uh, and I've seen people package multiple things together. Yes, they want to to see that you have made a compelling case that there is a need to do this. Yeah. And then the next one they want is they really want you to have compared different ways to solve the problem. Sometimes that's harder than others. Let's say your meters are old and they're not reading right and you want to replace them. What are you going to just compare two different kinds of meters? That That's rough for me. I'm like, Really? We're going to go through all that work and just compare meter A and meter B? Oftentimes, I don't do a PER for meters. I lump meters in with other things like replacing the water lines or new pumps Uh or something. Um, Let's say we have leaky water lines. In that case, what we would do is we would say, how much does it cost to replace the water lines just to meet average demand? How much does it cost to replace the water lines to meet average demand and fire flow? Or how much does it cost to replace the lines to meet peak demand? You know, so that uh-huh. would be how we would compare things. And then uh, at the end, they want to see that you've made a, a nice, nice bundled up package of um, here's the proposed project and here's the cost for it. And here's how we're going to go forward. So those are the things that the agency would be looking for when they review it. Yeah, and it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of time. And... I've seen PERs that took hundreds and hundreds of hours to do, and then a few that are just substantially less. Yeah, we're just we're just fixing this. We need to put in some, but they have to have an engineering review of it, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, we've we've done one for just replacing a well, mm-hmm. and we backed up and we just looked at all of their wells, showed how they needed more capacity, and this one was failing. And like you said, that took us a month or two and it was pretty abbreviated. But, you know, when you're talking about water treatment, it's really, really thick because we're, we're going into the details of what would be included and we're doing bench tests and we're showing the, all the analytical results. And yeah, it adds up. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I will say you want someone who's licensed at the end of the day. You want an engineering <laughs> firm with accreditations and licenses and things like that. I have a client who had a summer intern do a PER. Somehow they got someone to stamp it and they used it to go get funding and then they hired me. And I unfortunately was the bearer of bad news of, okay, you thought it was going to cost 600,000. I think it's more like 2 million. And you thought you could, you know, run the lines this way, but that, that won't work because the pressures are too high here and too low there. And the flows won't work. And, you know, I ran a model, you know. So, yeah, the temptation would be, why should I spend all that money on this just upfront document that really doesn't actually solve my problem? But 
it does point you in the right direction. And it, like we said, it's the key to the gate to get the money. And at the end of the day, it's all about getting that money. <laughs> yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, is there any other lessons learned that you want to share with us, Marty? Huh. Well, I, I think we've talked about them along the way, but one is you need an engineer who can help you find money. And two, you need to make sure and spend time with that engineer both up front to get them all of the information they need, but then also towards the end when they've got kind of the draft of it together to go through and make sure that what they're proposing actually makes sense. And it's real easy when the engineer sends you a PER that's, you know, 150 pages long to, uh, yes. where's, the, where's the cost? You know, and you look at it, you're like, you know, but to sit with them and have them walk through, here's what we're proposing and show that to you so that you can, you can go, oh, hold on. You know, we don't actually need that. We need this, you know, instead of figuring that out a long ways down the road. Yeah. Cause then there's scope creep and change orders and everyone hates a change order. They do. But awesome. Well, Marty, thank you for joining us for today. I really appreciate it. I'd like I said, I, when I heard your presentation, I'm like, oh my gosh, so many people need to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, you know, PERs, there's, there's a reason for them. Yep. And, you know, for any of our listeners that want to talk with Marty, you're going to find his contact info in the show notes as well. And Marty, now we're going to transition to the part of the show that I call Wanda's Water Tidbit. All right. Okay. So uh, this is the part of the show dedicated to my mom who, over the years, has sent me a bit of trivia. And this is the part of the podcast where we celebrate or share something that's unusual and sometimes brilliant about water. And I have to thank Kay Curtin from uh, Wisconsin Rural Water for this trivia piece. We're going to talk about Cloacina or Cloacina. depends on how you want to pronounce her name. But she was a goddess who presided over the Cloaca Maxima or the greatest drain. And this was in Rome. So this is the main interceptor that discharged the outfall from Rome. So when we talked about earlier, we're like, that's probably why they were able to have such large communities successfully is because they knew how to do wastewater systems or at least drain it away. But the name could also be interpreted as the purifier, which, you know, I could kind of get that. But uh, she was... Cloacina or Cloacina was an etrusian. I really need to know these words really well before I start talking about them. <laughs> but she was a goddess first before being adopted by the Romans. And I didn't know, like Marty, if you knew this before you read it, but uh, this is the same drain that the Sabines and the Romans purified themselves with after war. It was supposed to not only purify them, but unite them as people and you brought up a really great point you want to share that again well i i'm not sure they had a full picture of what might have been in that water as they were washing themselves off hopefully it actually did purify them and not kill off the weak <laughs> i'm like uh, hopefully everyone was healed from their wounds you know <laughs> yeah yeah like that that's just that's an interesting mindset i'll say yep but the legend has it that soon after the completion of the Cloaca Maxima, and it was built about 500 BC in Rome or BCE, a statue of a woman was found in the sewers. So they rescued it and cleaned it, and she became Cloacina or Cloacina, 
the Roman goddess of the sewer. And the first time I read that, I'm like, of course there was a statue in the sewer because yep. everyone throws everything down the sewer. Yep. But, you know, the Romans came to believe that Cloacina rolled over them or rolled over and protected their sanitary workers and the extensive sanitary service. So I was just like, I did not know that there was one specific for the wastewater industry. <laughs> did you know, Marty? No, ma'am. <laughs> but well, I'm glad there's someone out there looking over. There you go. Well, and her sphere of influence also includes cleansing and rivers in general. So, you know, a little bit of the water people too. Uh, but she was greatly revered and respected by the Romans. And they would have statues of her in their latrines, shrines, arts. You know, they even had uh, prayers for her. I was like, there's this whole part of my industry I never knew. <laughs> and in the show notes, we're also going to include a picture of the coins that was minted in her honor, uh, 46 BCE. And then I'm also not surprised that they found a statue because every wastewater worker I know has fished something out of a manhole and ha is willing to brag about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went to uh, one city in, here in Arizona. and They found a full-size bicycle in their main. <laughs> All right. And you're like, that doesn't just happen. Someone had to work on that. Sure, sure. And part of me wants to know if they disassembled it and assembled it in the main. Or <laughs> how did they do that? Hmm. So, yeah. All right. Well, Marty, I want to thank you again for joining us. And I am glad we were finally able to make this work. If you listeners want to contact Marty or learn more about Cloacina or Cloacina, please review the show notes for this episode. And we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast. Brought to you by Huma Environmental, formerly Probiotic Solutions. We offer a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com. After November 1st, all of our online information will be at huma.us.